I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode four of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. This particular episode is entitled The Other Fight Understanding Conventional Warfare. I don't intend at all on giving a uh, class or a master class that covers the entire gamut of conventional warfare in what the Army and the Western forces refer to pretty much as uh, unified land operations and such. Even though we do have mud to space concerns in present conflict and future conflict, especially the near-peer and peer conflict that we are facing down from this point into the immediate, intermediate and probably long-term future. So a slight preamble. Many were these ordinarily self-professed special operators. I never knew so many could exist. Have been making much of the American, if not Western, expertise in building, fighting, and dashing enemies with unconventional warfare. Whether that's our disasters in Iraq, the U.S. disaster in Afghanistan, the U.S. disaster in Libya, in Syria, in the Horn of Africa, in all these other moments when the American intelligentsia, ruling class, and defense intellectuals find themselves with a grenade in which the pen has been removed, they find it exploding in their pants because they didn't realize it was there and they hadn't extrapolated nor done the second and third order effects speculation to determine what's going to happen if the following chess pieces on this global chessboard start to either collide or turn into a cavalcade of calamities as so much of Western foreign policy has been since the end of World War II. Now, per unconventional warfare, it's a myth that there is an expertise here when it comes to the conduct thereof by the U.S., if not for the most part, most Western forces. Per unconventional warfare, Modern post-World War II U.S. Special Operations Forces never do long, dwell-time, partisan guerrilla creation and improvement. Because foreign internal defense, referred to as FID, does not a guerrilla make. They didn't even do it in Vietnam, six-month rotations in and out for the most part. The 39th Special Forces Detachment, 1st Special Forces Regiment, was apparently tasked with this mission in Berlin, for partisan activation, but demobilized in 1984. That mission never materialized. Of course, some secret squirrel government apparatchik can huff and puff. It's been done, but it's a state secret, don't you know? Yeah, right, so we can't talk about it. I find it most interesting that counterinsurgency dominates all the status literature on how to prosecute these conflicts. You know in the past, if you've listened to other episodes, that in agreement with Douglas Porch, I characterize most of what is referred to as counterinsurgency as more neo-colonial small wars warfare than anything else. 
Think of this much like the foolishness of countering improvised explosive devices, IEDs, the task forces, the technology, the billions of dollars that are spent, and think tank bloviations on how to technically defeat mind warfare, which has been in existence for millennia, because IED warfare is mind warfare, which, whether waterborne, littoral, um, blue water, or landborne, mind warfare has been around for a very long time. Now, why haven't the Mandarins bothered to nominate massive brain trusts and expenditures of tens of billions on counter-rifle warfare or counter-grenade warfare or such arcana? We all know why. As a matter of fact, when things get sporty in the coming endarkenment that is coming to the Western world, apparently, and the fighting starts against the inevitable insurgency that will germinate in the States on the European continent, whatever the case may be, I assure you it will be much like the bloody Kansas and Missouri conflicts in the South before the War of Northern Aggression where federal involvement built and mentored and incentivized a South Ron resistance from scratch with scorched earth tactics. Now that was done in the 19th century and of course we see that done again and again, especially by European powers for the almost entirety of the 20th century and well into the 21st. So I always find myself sort of uh, almost conflicted about the German army and the Wehrmacht, as I've talked before. Germany, of course, didn't simply exist from 1933 to 1945 and simply switch themselves off in spite of the fact that in contemporary times we observe that The Morgenthau Plan apparently is a plan being instituted by the Green government in Germany to impose upon itself. We shall see what happens with that. But nonetheless, whatever one's feelings about the Wehrmacht, which I consider to be one of the most competent forces that have been ranged since the Roman forces and and others, nonetheless, strategically and grand strategically, lost World War I, lost World War II, at the tactical and operational level, tended to punch above their weight in a martial sense. So I, of course, being the comprehensivist reader I am, when it comes to all things military, I'm currently doing a deep dive into both the Boer Wars from uh, 1890 until uh, 1902. And that, of course, is great fodder for future episodes in which I will talk about Boer commandos and how they bested for the most part, the British attempts, what I like to refer to as the barbed wire empire, where the British first started using concentration camps as a war aim to defeat the Boers at that time. In that vein, speaking of mind warfare, there's a fascinating German general by the name of Hermann Balch, B-A-L-C-K. In the 1970s, he was debriefed by the Western intelligence community, and those interviews and debriefs are available online if you look them up. Very interesting stuff. He proposed that a way to make mines work even better is to emplace dummy mines at a ratio in excess of 50 to 1 to drain enemy time and resources. Food for thought for coming conflicts. Now, in order to contest an insurgency, one must understand why they occur and what machinations make them remain afloat and expanding despite the massive influx of first world military technology, manpower, and vast treasure. Well, the answer is rather simple, as we know from 
those of you who have listened to my podcast, Invasion, Foments, Insurgency. And the more of the former, the more robust the latter in response. The West, for all its trillions spent, tens of thousands injured, and time and resources utterly wasted, can't seem to grok that rather simple fact. Want to win a counterinsurgency? Pack up and leave. No Muslim insurgency since the end of the uh, of World War II has been defeated, but that I, I'm going to append that because I've had some interesting correspondence with very intelligent listeners, I have a lot of those, who have said, well, what about Muslim counterinsurgents fighting Muslim insurgents? That is something that I am certainly going to consider investigating further. Hence, the proviso, no Muslim insurgency has been bested by a Western non-Muslim nation since the end of World War II. So enough of that. I owe the listenership a list on 4GW, and I'll do that some, sometime in the future. That would be fourth-generation warfare. But today we'll tackle a, a, a top-five list of readings in the conventional spectrum. And I will not endorse Klaus Fitz despite his titanic presence in these strategic circles that discuss warfare. He's been um, talked to death in other areas, so I wanted to uh, pry out some other, maybe a little more arcane things that are available to you. But here's the bottom line. The U.S. has not won a conventional conflict, much less an unconventional conflict, despite the trillions spent and the wholesale creation of one of the largest and most technologically advanced armed forces in the history of mankind since World War II, which, of course, provides considerable fodder for this podcast and future episodes. So I've tackled reading lists for military matters before in my previous life. I wanted to update that list with a more focused addendum that discusses how and why mass conventional armies operating on the full spectrum of conflict behave in success and defeat. Now, there are a lot of really good, serviceable, unconventional 4GW guerrilla book lists out there that I highly recommend you take a look at. But we're going to discuss the conventional aspects of war for a brief period of time here. So I've crafted this top five list of uh, more conventional military perspectives, military reading for second and third generation baseline military theater and practice, because if you don't know that, you can't fight fourth generation warfare. Second generation warfare can be best characterized as positional or attrition warfare, and third generation warfare could be characterized by maneuver warfare. Whether that's Liddell Hart's indirect approach or direct approach, but nonetheless, one in which maneuver is a key element in buying space and time by leaping forward, taking flanks, or attacking enemies in the rear. You know, we've got to admit that even the guerrilla or the insurgent, if you don't know what the center of gravity's command echelonments and logistical needs are, for large modern armies that may be imposing themselves in a counterinsurgency initiative in the country or regional complex of conflicts they are concentrated in, how do they operate a meat space? How do their decision cycles operate? How do their OODA loops operate? I've spent a little bit of time in combat theaters. I can claim no great laurels whatsoever, but I have had my eyes open and opened Much of the Irish Republican Brotherhood 
Irish Republican Army leader Michael Collins' success is that he had a fair amount of former veterans of the British Army in his flying columns, not special operations. Again, is that every vet nowadays? But regular mud boggers who had seen the grinding death machine of the British Army in France during World War I. Now, Collins, as I've discussed before, you can look up the episodes, was a titan in guerrilla warfare in the 20th century as I put him in in my big guerrilla museum of these mighty men at the beginning of the 20th century who really carved this niche and carved a path for what 20th century unconventional and irregular warfare would look like. But many of his methodologies were born from observing firsthand how conventional units behave and finding ways to grind them down. Now, it's been December of 2001 in Afghanistan for 20 years, because all all of us remember that this month, the month of September 2023, marks the 25th month since the ignominious and infamous withdrawal and sort of crazy retreat from Afghanistan that everybody saw over two years ago. Well, it's Groundhog Day from the Chief of Staff of the Army to the lowest Afghanistan National Army private every day during that time that the United States was there. The day the last Western boot left Afghan soil, Kabul would be under siege, and we discovered that after the trillions of dollars spent there, the Afghan National Army and the Afghan political structure and everything that the West had invested so much blood and toil and wealth into dissolved in under a month. Again, trillions wasted to make the military-industrial complex flush with money and the region awash in corpses and mayhem after the Western incursion. Groundhog Day indeed. I would suggest that American arms and lesser so Western armies have a reputation for fighting efficacy that they are unworthy of. So as I mentioned, General Herman Ball, want to get into the mind of a superb conventional combatant? You need to look to the Germans. You need to look to the Wehrmacht. Balk in particular. There are a number of others. Uh, do you want to get into the mind of a superb unconventional combatant? Again, look to the Germans. In this case, it would be General Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck, World War I, who in November 1918, as I had mentioned before in my peak guerrilla episode, stood as the only undefeated German general on the face of the planet in November 1918. And Frank Kurowski has done a really good job of compiling the citations for the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. The Ritterkreuz die Eisernen Kreuzes in his Aces series in Stackpole books, which gives up a fair overview of the German combat experience in World War II. The fascinating thing about this is that it is almost an analog or a peer to Medals of Honor or Victoria Crosses that have been issued in the U.S. and the U.K. respectively. These, for the most part, give you tremendous insight and a play-by-play for soldiers, mostly non-commissioned officers and enlisted men, and not officers, even though there tends to be more officers who are recipients of the Victoria Cross in England. 
it gives you an insight into that small unit combat. The fact that the fire team, the squad, and a little more so the platoon are the bleeding edge of every armed conflict that takes place in a conventional sense. The translation can be challenging at times and the descriptions don't nuance the individuals to a degree that I would enjoy, but it gives credence to why the Allies had their hands full fighting German forces in parity up until April, May 1945. Now, as I mentioned, the Knight's Cross had five levels of award, with the highest being the Knight's Cross with golden oak leaves, swords, and diamonds, and awarded to a single man. In this case, Hans Ulrich Rudel. Now, Rudel's war record is simply amazing in any scale. He began the war as a reconnaissance pilot and was training to convert to a dive bomber pilot, the famous Stukas, during the invasion of France in 1940. His career finally began with the invasion of Russia in June 1941 under Barbarossa. And he served in the Russian front until the end of the war, that being April 1945, except for short periods in Germany as instructor and test pilot. So in the next four years, he flew a total of 2,530 combat sorties in which he destroyed 519 Russian tanks, 150 artillery guns, 1,000 vehicles, a battleship, believe it or not, the USSR Marat. I urge you to look that up. Two cruisers, a destroyer, 70 landing craft, and also shot down 11 aircraft, most Russian. He was shot down 30 times, lost a leg, which didn't stop him at all, and performed numerous acts of sacrifice and heroism. Rudel had the rare combination of great warrior skills and tons of luck, and I am always of a mind that a lot of luck is due to meticulous, meticulous planning on your part and assuming or at least being mentored and coached into finally getting a conscious and eventually unconscious competence in the craft that you pursue. And, of course, years of intense daily fighting to fully exploit them, which is how he reached such an amazing record for which he became the highest decorated German soldier during the war. So what, what is the fulcrum of this German brilliance in warfare? Remember, I'm trying to characterize to a larger extent here conventional operations versus the unconventional operations that are the bread and butter of this podcast series. The Germans codified and trained an adaptive awareness of evolution of arms down to the platoon level, and I would, uh, I would suggest that this was also instantiated at the, uh, at the fire team and squad level during a conflict and employed tactic, which I've mentioned before, which is mission command, down to the lowest level possible. Again, the Prussian culture of disobedience that had characterized the German army since 1805 after the reforms took place under mostly Prussian tutelage. They pressed home the advantage of initiative in every combatant scenario. They made it so that, much like our U.S. Forest Service does something called incident command, the first person at the edge of a conflagration, or in this case, conflict, is the one who ultimately sees the task through because they've been, over the, they've been at the bleeding edge the longest, they have the most experience with that particular event, and they're the ones who know through the fiction and fro- friction and fog of war what needs to be done to finally prevail against the enemy that they're fighting? 
The entire army was built around that concept that friction, again, Clausewitz, always sunders the best laid plans. And a full knowledge of intent for the mission will allow commanders to be flexible and creative in meeting the end state. In this case, of course, intent is worth more than a thousand words. Intent is that who, what, where, why picture, notice I didn't say how, who, what, where, why picture given by the upper echelons of command to the lower echelons of command and all the parts and pieces on the war chessboard who are going to be performing all of their war fighting, they are left with the ability that's granted to them of taking initiative when the plan goes awry and they have to do something else without seeking permission from above. So everything in war is very simple, Clausewitz notes, but the simplest thing is difficult. If you take the time to read the interview with General Balch, you'll see where this is possible with entire armies at the echelon that he was at. It's uh, incredible to read the interviews with him, and I happen to have a book that, unfortunately, because I am moving, I have boxed a lot of my books, so I couldn't get it out for this particular podcast episode. But he was able, not only through the competence of the echelonments that he commanded at the time in Russia, he could do things to such an exquisite timing and ability for coordination and synchronization that he could actually walk artillery fires danger close to his advancing forces who, through radio means, constant communications, and the trust that he had in his subordinates to shift and jig and jog and make all the changes and nip and tuck that they would for the plan to make sure that the intent was met. Sure, they lost the grand strategic uh, war in World War II. There's no doubt about that. The incompetence and the incoherence of the National Socialist cognitive indifference to emerging events, uh, uh, craven and politically cowardly German general staff, much like the American Pentagon today, and the cacocracy assured no victory would come, no matter how ferocious or effective German arms. As I have mentioned before, I become a big fan of the Australian scholar David Stahel, S-T-A-H-E-L, who made the very bold pronouncement in a number of books that he had on Barbarossa and the Germans fighting there, that as a result of this grand strategic incompetence and the absolute strategic incompetence when it came to rational logistics trains and the ability to integrate and synchronize armies so that they can continue fighting. Because once the Germans had Blitzkrieg stopped in their ability to do what they did because they were drunk on the successes of what had happened in Western Europe and thought that they could replicate those very successes in the East with Operation Barbarossa starting in the summer of 1941. That was not to be the case. And the German general staff and the German army had not trained for what would happen if not only were there logistical tales in the hazard, but in positional warfare, how would they fare against an enemy who could quite literally lose divisions, corps, and armies, and from 1943 to 1945, quite literally reconstitute them 
the, themselves many times over. But you've got to be really careful in what you read in history and consider the author's vantage point. There's been a huge historiographical error in the West in attempting to, demon, in attempting to demonize all things German because of the 12 years that I had mentioned. In a country that wasn't fully born as a country until the 1870s, the same has also occurred in assessing what I consider a miraculous turnaround for Soviet operational and strategic competence from 1943 and 1945. When I lecture on anti-fragility in systems engineering or anti-fragility in future conflict, and I've spoken of anti-fragility in previous episodes, I always use this astounding Russian renaissance and reanimation of their operational forces and strategic forces. And I mentioned before, take a look at what happened to the Japanese at the hands of the Germans on the day after the bomb hit Hiro days after the bomb hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 1945, it, it makes Barbarossa, as far as sheer numbers, pale in comparison. I suspect the world has never seen such a rapid martial maturation as the turnaround in Soviet operational and strategic competence from 1943 to 1945. I happen to think U.S. entry into the world wars was a tremendous error, but that's fodder for another podcast episode. But the communists beat the National Socialists, not the West. And of course, the communists had plenty of help from the West, as I talk about in my review of McMeekin's book, Stalin's War. What you discover in all of this is that we don't seem to have learned much from that conflict. I get the importance of small unit tactics at the squad and platoon level. And there's no doubt that the West has some talent, but the fight is just going to be longer and harder than anyone can envision now with contesting regional hegemons like Russia, BRICS coalitions, or China all by their lonesomes. But guess what? None of the green suitors, retired or otherwise, and the flag officers are just awful, have the answer for turning this ship around. So here's five authors in no particular order whose writing will lend a less ten, tin ear to how second and third generation armies work in the full spectrum of conflict. I think if you, uh, if you take a look at these books, whether you read them in total or, or just go through them and discover what it is you think is right for fixing, adjusting, or expanding your current comprehension of conventional warfare, of course, it almost seems de rigueur to make this recommendation, but I can't do this otherwise. Sun Tzu, I highly recommend that the brilliant, simple, and still relevant, and much better than Clausewitz as far as accessibility, to distill the essence of both direct and indirect approaches. I also recommend the works of his grandson, Sun Pin, as an accompaniment to the text once you read Sun Tzu, and you can read Sun Tzu in an evening. Uh, the translator, Ralph D. Sawyer, has done a terrific job translating many ancient Chinese military texts for modern audiences. Can't recommend his work highly enough, and the totality of the reading is a tremendous boon to the armchair strategist. I mentioned uh, Sun Pin. Is he grandson or great-grandson of Sun Tzu? 
He took his ancestors' writings, and I think he gave it a new twist that resonates to this day. Colonel John Boyd. Boyd is one of my favorite post-World War II military thinkers, not perfect, but very interesting, who really expands the edge of the cognitive envelope. He's responsible for popularizing discovery, the concept of the odor loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. Uh, most likely, he discovered it, certainly didn't invent it. He is the father of the F-16 in the U.S. Air Force of which there are still almost 3,000 flying today in spite of coming out for the first time in 1979. You know, he's one of the few folks here who wielded a, wielded a tremendous influence without leaving behind a significant book or even library of his works to cogitate on. He did have this famous massive slide deck that you can find on the internet called Patterns of Conflict. I recommend it. It hasn't aged well across the board. Nonetheless, interesting to take a look at. It's made the rounds for decades, and it's worth your time to mull it over. I happen to think that if we thought more deeply in the American Armed Forces after World War II than Boyd, who made the elegant observation that all strategy boils down to variance on isolation and alliance to achieve victory. I repeat, this is one of those things where I had a brain zephyr and thought, wow, what a, what a brilliant distillation where it boils down to, and again, variance on isolation and alliance to achieve victory. Isolate your threat, form as many alliances as possible. This, of course, is one way that the West did manage to win World War II. I also recommend Don Vandergriff. He's written a host of books. Don and I happen to be friends. We correspond on occasion. We even see each other in meat space probably once every two years. He lives on the East Coast. I live in the Inland West, although I will be moving to the East Coast, Florida in particular, in October of this year. Don's a, he's a cool cat. He graduated, he retired from the Army as a major, sort of a contemporary of mine. He was always involved in trying to fix the ghastly personnel system in the U.S. Army that gives us these middling and low information flag officer that the uh, flag officers that the army has been plagued with for the last 50 years he did his best to try to fix that wasn't able to do so didn't have the hotspot nor the horsepower to make those changes but he made great recommendations he's also the one who turned me on to studying the german way of war like uh mr muth who i mentioned below and he gives a scintillating reading of the German general staff from 1901 to 1940. The evolution actually begins in, began in 1805, as I mentioned before. And while Don and I have filled in the blanks on some of the advantage, advantages of German staff systems, when we both advised in Afghanistan, nonetheless, we were just uh, making very minor contributions even there. Don's a champion of Auftragstaktik and mission-type orders that I mentioned earlier, and I dare say he may be the foremost authority in America on that very topic. Despite his decades-long battle to get the U.S. Armed Forces to make it part of the way it does business, it has happened. ADP, ADRP, 3.0, it's actually entitled Mission Command. But the U.S. Army being the scleritic, arthritic, and closed-minded, cloistered association of soldiering that it is, 
I think it's much more lip service than it is an actual embrasure of Auftrag's tactic and that kind of practicing of harnessing intent to a lot of freedom of action for lower subordinate organizations. Happens in special operations forces a lot, not so much in big green army. So I do think they simply give it lip service. I have all his books. Uh, Raising the Bar is the best introduction to the nuts and bolts of applying the German methodology to Western forces today. He calls his methodology the adaptive course model, ACM, and states its purpose as, quote, creating leaders who understand and practice adaptability while encouraging Army senior leaders to nurture this trait in their subordinates, end of quote. You have heard me say in the past that when one looks at conflict around the world, what you discover is that big or small, whatever the case may be, conventional or unconventional, warfare in human terms is the largest conflict of complex adaptive systems coming to the fore and fighting against each other. Hence the friction, hence the fog, hence the plans that go awry, Hence the roll of the dice and who's going to win and who's not going to win. Hence the winning of operational, maybe even tactical objectives, but losing the war in the long run, much like happened in Vietnam. By the way, I finished Way by Bowden, Way 1968, about the Battle of Tet. Very interesting. I did not realize just how instrumental that particular conflict was in turning around the fortunes of the West in Vietnam. And for those who have never been in the legions, I suspect his ambitions will never see the light of day, despite ADP and ADRP 3.0. Ran into an interesting guy named George Muth. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I love Martin Van Creveld. I don't want to listen to him because he has some kind of speech impediment that may be for health reasons I can't watch him speak because it drives me to distraction, but nonetheless, his books are brilliant. I thought that fighting power was groundbreaking, but it left me wanting a fuller analysis. And on that, Muth delivers. What Van, Cre- Van Crevel talked about in fighting power is he talked about a comparison between the German armies and the American armies and the officer corps and where they came from. And he sort of answers the question culturally, educationally, and why the two armies differed and what they were able to achieve by doing the deep dive analysis on them respectively. I urge you to read the book. It's a thin tome, probably 150 pages. So George Muth wrote a book called Command Culture, Officer Education in the U.S. Army and the German Armed Forces, 1901 to 1940, and the consequences for World War II. And I think to a certain extent, he provides a little more rigorous analytical heft in heavy lifting than Van Crevel did, which is uncharacteristic for Van Crevel, but nonetheless, there it is. Trevor Dupoy agrees in his seminal work on the subject. Dupoy's Encyclopedia of Military History, second edition, has been a constant desk companion for me. I would urge all of you, if you can get a copy of it used or whatever the case may be, very useful. Again, Muth does a deep dive, as do some others. There is a Another Israeli historian who was recommended to me by one of my correspondents who goes by the initials EF, 
That book is Transforming Command, the Pursuit of Mission Command in the U.S., British and Israeli Forces by Eitan Shamir. Highly recommend this book. Haven't finished it yet. On the way. So as a companion to Van Creveld's book and more so to George Muth's book, highly recommend these as uh, a great not only introduction but food for thought and an intellectual lifting engine for considering just how this stuff works. You know, like all areas of inquiry, one can start to get what Mortimer Adler called syntopical reading when a conversation and interrogation of three to five books on a subject will get the intellectual engines roaring. And if you're an active reader and you pay enough attention, Mortimer Adler, of course, being the colleague to Clifton Fadiman, who created the great books of the Western world out of the Encyclopedia Britannica in the 50s and 60s. The subject's vast and complex, but you don't have to spend a lifetime in the legions to understand it. Most retired veterans that I know of have zero historical context, and most of them, especially those who even have achieved field grade rank or flag grade rank, have a middling grasp of operational and strategic art. Now, look, this is just the beginning of what I would hope would become a lifetime of study for all of my listeners. I have a vast library, and my wife, of course, complains about the fact that I do buy more books. And in Umberto Eco's words, I have a library and anti-library. The library would be all the books that I read cover to cover. The anti-library would be, that would be A-N-T-E library. The anti-library would be the books I use for reference. For instance, I had mentioned Du Bois' history of uh, 3,500 years of warfare. That's a constant death side companion for it. Of course, I haven't read that start to finish or cover to cover. That's not its purpose or utility. I have books that range anywhere from South, Af- South African Bush War vehicle vehicles that were used to 19th century equipage that were used in the that was used in the Victorian army and these kind of things are are going to send you on all kinds of different subgenres within military history economic history wherever you may find yourself and they're going to land you in other places where you will find yourself wandering around studying things that you didn't think you had the first clue about but then again The reason we study about these things is to get a better clue about them. I'd like to end this with a few book recommendations on grand strategy, which is something that we really haven't teased about very much during this entire podcast series. Colin S. Gray is one of my favorite, I guess, um, strategists when it comes to teaching me the rudiments and even the intermediate and advanced understandings and implementations of strategy. I recommend Fighting Talk and Strategy and History as two of those. I also recommend Johnston's Cultural Realism, Strategic Culture and Grand Strategy in Chinese History if you find Sun Tzu and Sun Pin having you wanting more. And of course, I love Robert Greene's work and his 33 Strategies of War is outstanding. And again, if you understand the upper echelons and the visionary framework of what's trying to be accomplished at the strategic and grand strategic realm, it gives you a better insight into either missteps or forward steps 
that take place at the tactical and operational level. So if you haven't caught on yet, books are a big part of my life, big part of uh, making me understand and grok the world around me. I hope you enjoy this. I hope to hear back from you sometime now or in the future. I wanted to thank all of my listeners. I think I've gone over 42,000 individual downloads, and I have um, a fair amount of people who are consistent in listening to my stuff, and I appreciate that listenership. Anybody who has comments, discussions, questions, please be as gentlemanly as possible. If you have criticisms, make them constructive. Is at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill out.